Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. So, here's the deal. I dropped my last episode too early, and then it was going to be too long until I was going to talk to Helen, and so now you're basically just going to get a bonus episode this week. So we're going to talk about xylitol toxicity, and I think this is a good one for ER, but also for receptionists to talk to clients about. And also great for the general practitioner techs to be able to talk to clients about like what um, stuff has xylitol in it and what to avoid. So let's talk about quickly like what is xylitol? So xylitol is also known as birch sugar, B-I-R-C-H, like the tree, a birch tree, birch sugar or wood sugar. So they have to like really watch to see like what kind of sugar is truly in there. Because now that people have caught on that xylitol is not good and people don't want xylitol in their stuff, now companies are starting to just relabel it as birch sugar or wood sugar. So it's basically like this alcohol, it's a sugar alcohol, that's used to sweeten most of the sugar-free products. It's actually naturally found in some elements, so like in berries, plums, oats, corn, mushrooms, and some other fruits but it's just found in really small amounts. We as humans actually use it for quite a lot of things. So like right now, everybody's doing this weight loss thing, right? Because it's the 1st of January, or it's after January. People are going to start doing weight loss programs. Um, I actually have it in a lot of my uh, protein bars and shakes and stuff like that. And the nice thing about it is it has like 60% less calories than sugar does. So it's a good way to sweeten things, but not have enough of those calories. It also helps like fight tooth decay using some really cool antibacterial properties. There was actually a lady who came in and she had this like xylitol, I don't remember what it's called, but it was like this, these mints basically that were just pure xylitol and actually supposed to help with like tooth decay. Uh, it's really good for diabetic patients because they don't have to have the high sugar and have like these really high um, s- sugar spikes. And also they've done some really cool research, like it may help with osteoporosis. It could potentially help with like ear infections and throat infections. And it could also potentially reduce the risk of endometriosis, uterine fibroids, and also breast cancer. Really cool, right? Does really cool stuff but just not as good for dogs. So real quick, where are these things found? So this is where our general practitioner peeps, this is where you're going to talk about like what foods and things should we avoid that have xylitol in it. So some of the common foods are going to be like sugar-free gums. Um, Some peanut butters do. This is mostly going to be smaller brands that have it. So like little brands, not our big brands like Jiffy. Jiffy and stuff, they used to have it in there, and then they caught on that it wasn't good for dogs, and so then they started taking it out of there. But still, just always have them check the back of their peanut butters, their nut butters. It could be in any type of those, so just have them check the package. Uh, some candies, baked goods, especially when it's from like our neighbors and stuff, if they bake a sugar-free uh, version of it, you want to check for those things. There's been recently a case study where there was a skinny ice cream that had it in it as well. Um, Like I said, the protein bars, protein shakes, those can tend to have it in them. And then there's some weird like non-food things. This is where a lot of people don't think about it because it can also be in things that are not food. So it's found in sunscreen. It's found in certain medications like cough syrups and nasal sprays. It can be found in toothpastes. 
It can be found in oral hygiene products like the breath mints that I had talked about. Um, in some adult and children's chewable vitamins or their supplements that are chewable. It could be in cosmetics. It could be in deodorants. Like what dog wants to eat deodorant? Who knows why, but they do. Uh, hair care products and then some sugar-free syrups and elixirs. So one really interesting one is gabapentin. So when they make it into a liquid at the pharmacy, you have to ask to make sure that if it's sugar-free, that it does not have xylitol. Like when it's written on a prescription or something, it should say like does that it should not contain xylitol. Or even having the owner just ask like to make sure that their sugar-free syrup doesn't have xylitol in it. All right, who does this affect? So in the species that we mostly see, it's mostly going to be dogs. It does not affect cats and it does not affect ferrets. And obviously it doesn't really affect us. Like for us really just gives us diarrhea. That's about it. But it also randomly affects some other animals, right? So like rabbits, cows, baboons, and goats. So don't feed this to your cows, okay? And then what do we do if they do get into xylitol? So again, this is where general practice can talk about like, what should you do if they get into it? Or the receptionist, if somebody calls and says, my dog got into xylitol, what should we do? This one is actually one that they should call poison control for because we don't know how much xylitol is in there. Even if you Google some of these things, it'll say a different amount. And we'll kind of talk about that in just a minute. And then, so you ask them to call poison control and bring the dog in immediately because we want to try to get this out of their system as soon as possible. And in that period of time when they're calling and driving over here, they're going to be waiting on hold anyways. So have them call, drive over, bring the dog in, and then give us the case number as soon as they have it while we bring the dog inside. So what does it cause? So it can cause two main things and a couple other weird things. So the most common thing that we see is going to be hypoglycemia or low blood sugar. This can actually develop within about 30 minutes of them ingesting it. That's really fast. But the weird thing is, is that it can also be delayed. So they may not have any blood sugar problems in the first 30 minutes, but maybe it actually gets delayed 12 to 18 hours after they ingested it. We're not really sure why it does this, but it does. We do know what causes it though. So the pancreas of the dog is really sensitive to xylitol. And Instead of it releasing the correct amount of insulin, insulin is used to drive down blood sugar. When as soon as we eat, insulin comes out, tells our blood sugar where to go and what to do with it. But instead, when it comes across xylitol, it actually releases three to seven times that of what it normally would with sugar. So it just like goes in overdrive, producing a ton of insulin to try to push that sugar down that it doesn't actually have. So it creates this hypoglycemia or really low blood sugar. Some of the clinical signs that you'll see from that is ataxia or wobbliness. Uh, they might vomit. They can become really weak or really depressed. And then they may even have seizures or it could go into a coma. The other weird thing that it causes is liver disease. We actually have no idea why it does this. There have been lots of studies done on it, but we're just not really sure why it causes liver, liver problems. But those can generally occur like on blood work. We'll see those changes potentially between 8 to 12 hours, even sometimes up to 72 hours. 
but the clinical signs don't usually occur for 24 to 48 hours. So like, let's say somebody brings in their dog and they say, I got into xylitol. Maybe they want to take it home and they can't do, can't do hospitalization. Well, if we did blood work on them in 12 hours, it might have actually shown that it was starting to have a liver problem, but they don't actually show the clinical signs of it until 24 to 48 hours after getting into it. So it is really important that they bring them in and hopefully hospitalize them. What clinical signs do do the liver problems cause? Um, It's kind of along the same lines as the hypoglycemia a little bit. So you're going to have depression, you're going to have vomiting, you can't have icterus, so that's jaundice in people or basically that yellow discoloration. They'll normally see it first in the eyes, the white of the eyes, or they'll see it in the ears, the inner ears or on the ventral abdomen or basically the underside of their belly. They may even see some bleeding problems, so they can see like bruising in places, or they might even see um, bleeding from places like the nose or vomiting blood. And then other things that we'll be looking for on blood work are going to be if they have hyperbilirubinemia, which just basically means that they're bilirubin, which comes from lots of different things, but usually like red blood cells or from the liver, will be high. Or they can have thrombocytopenia, meaning they have low platelets. I know we've kind of talked about platelets before, but basically platelets are like a little protein that goes to an area that's bleeding. So like, let's say you cut your finger, a platelet is the first thing that goes there to tell your body that you're bleeding and we need to stop the bleeding. And it tells all the other coagulation factors to come and stop the bleeding. The other big thing is hyperphosphatemia. So that means high phosphorus levels. If those are high, that is a bad prognostic indicator, meaning that the chances of survival are less than if we had had a normal phosphorus. So it's important that we're looking for those things as well. And then the other thing to realize is that there's, I did not talk about like a xylitol test. There is no test to be able to tell us how much xylitol they got into, or even if they did get into xylitol. So unfortunately, when some of these dogs come in, like having a seizure, one of the first things we have to evaluate is, could this have been a dog that had gotten into something that's going to cause seizures like xylitol? So maybe when, you know, let's say, Erica goes out to go get one of those um, dogs that's having a seizure, uh, one good thing to ask really quickly, if possible, or even to have the receptionist ask is, is there any way that it could have gotten into any toxins? There are lots of toxins that can cause seizures. And if they say, you know what, I saw that it got into my baked goods, then we might want to start considering that it could have been a sugar-free baked good. And this might be xylitol toxicity because we're going to treat these very different. If I give a dog who has a potential liver problem, midazolam, I might actually hurt it rather than help it. It might make the seizures worse. So instead, I'm going to give something like Keppra if I know that it's having those seizures from that. Or if I, if I know that, then I'm going to take a blood sugar and I'm going to immediately give it some dextrose if that's what we need. And I'll get to that in just a second. But typically, like I said, there is no test for it. Like really, this is going off of those clinical signs and then also what the history is. So other things that can cause hypoglycemia that we have to kind of rule out are going to be, like I said, other toxins. So that can be things like snail bait or strychnine poisoning 
or it could be organic organophosphates like a lot of times when dogs get into compost they can get into organophosphates and that can cause them to have seizures um, other things are going to be like if they got into some like uh, let's say uh, the humans diabetic and they get into their drugs it could be insulin i've only had one dog that actually got into insulin and ate it and we had to call poison control but uh, i've actually had other dogs get into people's medication that is specifically for lowering their blood sugar let's say you have a little tiny puppy that comes in like a little chihuahua and it's it's having a seizure well maybe it actually has a nutritional hypoglycemia or a juvenile hypoglycemia because it's a little tiny puppy they just cannot hold their glucose stores correctly and then they they use it all up and then they have seizures because they didn't get any more it can happen in hunting dogs so if you see like a super active super fit dog who's been like hunting for hours and then comes in seizing could be from that or it can be from an insulinoma so this is important because whoever brings the dog back needs to know that we need to immediately get blood on that dog if we think it's an older dog especially and his blood sugar is really low before any dextrose is given somebody needs to get blood on that dog so the reason why is we need to do something called an insulin glucose ratio and we can only do that when the insulin is high and the glucose is really low. So the glucose needs to be under 40 for us to be able to do that test and have it accurate. As soon as we give that dextrose, it's going to go up. And now either we have to wait for it to plummet again, which could give us a false result, or we just don't do the test. So ideally, we want to get the blood first while we're putting it in a catheter, right? And then, and once we know that they are hypoglycemic, then start to give dextrose so that we can give them back their blood glucose. All right, other things that might cause a liver insufficiency are going to be infectious things like leptospirosis, which I'm going to do on a different podcast. It uh, could be a viral hepatitis, meaning that there's just a viral infection that's causing a, um, an like, inflammation of the liver. There could be weird environmental things like they could have heat stroke or they can have trauma that can cause it. And then for some other toxins for liver problems are going to be like iron, acetaminophen or like Tylenol basically, mushrooms, blue-green algae, and sago palms. That was actually a really common thing in Southern California. I actually saw sago palm toxicity more than I ever saw xylitol toxicity. I don't think that they're as common here, but I've seen a couple of them around. And they're these little teeny tiny palm trees, basically. So as you can see, that there are lots of other things that could potentially cause these things. So if the owner doesn't know that it got into xylitol, that definitely makes our job harder because now we have to try to figure out which of all of these differentials this could potentially be. So let's say they do know that they had gotten into xylitol. How much is toxic? So to kind of give you perspective, um, if you're thinking about milligrams, because that's what people normally think about as milligrams, it's 34 to 45 milligrams per pound would cause hypoglycemia. Now to kind of put that another way, because typically on the package or when you call poison control, it's actually put into grams, not milligrams. So that would be 0.034 to 0.045 grams per pound. So again, and this is a lot of numbers, but but you'll get my drift here in just a second. But 
In a typical orbit gum, it is about 0.009 grams per piece of gum. But that's for most of them. Actually, the strawberry one specifically is 0.3 grams per piece. Now, if I was just to Google, somebody said, well, I got into Orbit's sugar-free gum, and I just Google, then I might look up and see that it's 0.009 grams per piece. But that wasn't the gum I got into. I got into the strawberry gum, which is a much higher dose. 0.3 is way different than 0.009 grams per piece, right? It's a much higher dose. But if I don't know that, then I might misdiagnose the dog. Because in, let's say, an eight-pound little chihuahua, if it ate one piece of that strawberry gum, then that could cause it to have hypoglycemia. The dose for liver toxicity is going to be 0.227 grams per pound. Again, just look, thinking about our little chihuahua, if it had gotten into six pieces of the strawberry gum, that is enough to cause liver failure. Now, you can get these in like eight packs, 10 packs, right? But they also make like this car cup, which holds 40 to 50 pieces of gum. Now imagine that eight pound chihuahua getting into that. It, that is bad. That is very bad, right? And that's just for Orbit. That's a general run-of-the-mill gum, has an average amount of xylitol in it. If we were to look at icebreakers, icebreakers is one of the highest ones in xylitol, and it is roughly about one gram per piece. There are other ones that are even higher than that, and some of them don't even publish like how much is in there. So that's another really important reason why they should call poison control, because like I said, maybe they told me it's an orbit piece and they didn't tell me a strawberry, so I'd be looking at the wrong wrong piece. Or maybe it's one of these icebreakers and they don't actually publish how much is on there. So unless poison control knows, then it makes this really difficult for us because we may not know and then we may not know how to treat the dog. And then we just have to treat it as if it got into a really high dose. But in general, icebreakers is about one gram per piece. Now, remember I talked about the strawberry orbit was 0.3 grams per piece. That's, again, a huge difference. That's a lot of xylitol in that piece. So let's say a five-pound dog ate one piece of icebreaker. That is enough to push it into liver failure. Just one piece. The other interesting thing that I just wanted to mention is that it doesn't always have to go hypoglycemia than liver failure. Like That's what you would assume would happen, that the dog gets into it, Let's say this little chihuahua gets into the, an icebreaker. You would think that it would go directly from like being fine to hypoglycemia. We know that it got into it because of that and then go into liver failure. But that's actually not how it works. Sometimes they will skip over the hypoglycemic portion completely and it'll just go straight into liver failure. But there's no way for us to know who's going to do that or why they do that. Um, another way to just kind of like look at this gum again, like let's say you had a 50 pound Labrador who got into the icebreakers, it would take about 11 pieces to cause them to go into liver failure. Or let's be a little more realistic. 
Uh, Tia knows what I'm talking about. Our labs are not 50 pounds. Let's say we have an 80-pound Labrador. It would take about 18 pieces to cause liver failure in them. And if it gets into one of those car cup things that has 40 to 50 pieces, it is definitely going to go into liver failure from that. Now, how are we going to treat our Chihuahua, our Labrador, whoever it is that got into the this xylitol? The first thing is, like I said, we want to make sure they are, are calling poison control so we know exactly how much is in there because that's going to dictate like what we're going to do for treatment. But no matter what, immediately we're going to induce emesis. So we're going to make them vomit so we can try to get up as much as possible. We may not get up the actual gum piece from it. A lot of times it'll be just the wrapper or like it's just all dissolved into liquid by that time. And that's okay as long as we're getting as much liquid out as possible. And then the second thing, as soon as they're done vomiting, giving them some anti-nausea medication. So giving them serenia so that their stomach feels better and they don't get aspiration pneumonia from constantly vomiting. And then um, after that kind of depends on, on how much they had gotten into as to what the next things that we're going to do are. So let's say our 80 pound lab just got one piece of gum. Probably not going to be a big deal. Most of the time, the toxicologist is just going to say, you're fine. Just go ahead and go home, watch them, feed them several small meals. They'll probably be okay. Versus let's say now we have that little five pound chihuahua who ate, you know, a, let's say the orbit gum. So if I got into like one of those orbit gum pieces, uh, we're going to want to monitor their blood sugar. Because that usually means to keep them in the hospital. It may not need to be on IV fluids. It's possibly just going to be just monitoring their blood sugar every one to two hours for 12 hours. So typically by the end of my shift, if they're doing fine, then most of the time I'm sending them home. And I'll usually give them several small meals throughout the night so that way we just keep their blood sugar up. But if they then become hypoglycemic, so their blood sugar does drop down when they're in the hospital, well, that means we do have to hospitalize them. So with their hospitalization, that's a couple of things. Usually we are putting them on IV fluids, but we're also putting in dextrose into there. That dextrose is going to help raise their blood sugar so that, that way it is increased until that insulin spike has decreased, which again is at about 12-ish hours. It can last for 24 hours though. So we usually tell people like if it gets to that hypoglycemic part, um, you should anticipate that they're going to be there for a full 24 hours then. Now notice so far I have not mentioned charcoal. So anything that ends in an all, so xylitol, will not need charcoal. It is not going to bind it. Uh, these are basically like the alcohols and they won't bind those things. So there's no reason to give charcoal. We're actually just going to give that dog something that they could aspirate on and that could actually cause a hypernatremia or a high sodium, which will cause them to have some of those similar effects as what we would see with xylitol poisoning. So they're going to become ataxic or wobbly. Uh, they might become lethargic and we and it will cause electrolyte imbalances. So we don't actually need to use it. Now, the next thing we're going to do in the hospital is if they're high enough to cause a potential liver problem, then we're going to draw blood as their baseline blood. And then we're going to draw blood every 24 hours for three days to make sure that their liver values do not go up. Regardless of whether they do or not, we are also usually starting them on some sort of hepatoprotectant or a liver protectant. 
The reason why is we're hoping that if we give them this liver protectant, which basically like the best way I can describe this is it just like catches free radicals or catches bad waste products that occur. But we don't actually know if it helps is the thing. So I usually tell people I would rather give a medication that could potentially help than to not give a medication and then it be detrimental afterwards. So if it's not going to hurt the dog, we might as well give it to them if there's a chance it's going to help them. So that's what these hepatoprotectants do. We're hoping that it is going to help protect the liver, but we don't actually know if that happens or not. And then the third thing is we're going to be looking for coagulopathies or anything that's going to cause a problem with clotting their blood. This could be bruising on their gums, on their abdomen, um, on on uh, their armpit area, or it could be that they have bleeding coming from their nose or vomiting blood. We're going to be watching for those things and also drawing blood to making sure that they don't have that, especially if their liver values are elevated. Because if their liver values are elevated, it's a higher chance that they could get that coagulopathy. Now, one big thing that people ask is, could this cause death? Yes, it absolutely can. And there has been a reported study of a dog who died within an hour of getting xylitol. It was a really high amount, but unfortunately, like that's very quick. Like that's a super quick onset. That's too fast for us to have even have done anything for them. You know, most of the time it's going to take them 20, 30 minutes to get there by the time I've called all these places and then come down. And then when they come down, we're trying to make them vomit. And if in the middle of them making them vomit, they're having seizures or whatever it is, they could potentially die from this. Absolutely. And then how do we get to prevent this? So the best way to prevent it is usually to talk to them about checking the labels of things, making sure that some of those things that say sugar-free do not have xylitol or birch sugar or wood sugar in them. There are different types of other sugars that are not toxic to dogs. So just making sure that they're looking for those things. And if they do have something to put it in another room. So I have some protein bars that have xylitol in it and they are in another room. The dog would have to go through two doors in order to get to it, which is never happens. They're like never in my room. So I don't have to really worry about that. But if you, if they do have xylitol out, making sure that they put it really high up or in a locked cabinet and making sure like even remember that there are dogs who are counter surfers. So they need to be really high up. Also talking to people about not keeping them in their purse or their car. That's a really common thing for somebody to keep their xylitol sugar-free gum in their car before they go out, you know, for the day. So they'll keep it in their car, but then let's say they leave the dog in the car for five minutes to go into Starbucks and then they come back out and suddenly that dog is seizing because it had gotten into so much gum. And then... Also talking to them about making sure that they're using just dog toothpaste. This is a really good one for general practice. You know, they some people will want to use human toothpaste, but that has xylitol in it. So make sure that they're only using dog toothpaste. And then checking their, their butters, so their peanut butters and nut butters to see if those potentially have it in them before giving it to the dog. You know, a lot of people will use that as treats or use it as a way of like getting them to eat their pills. So making sure that those, whatever they're giving does not have xylitol in it. And then just one thing about mouth mouthwashes, especially for general practice, 
they may ask about mouthwashes because there are actually mouthwashes for dogs that do have xylitol in them. Remember, I just talked in the very beginning about how it's actually really good for our teeth. It's still really good for their teeth as well, but they have to be really careful about who gets it and how they get it. So usually what happens is it comes in this this bottle and it tells you to add a certain amount of mouthwash to a certain amount of water, to a large amount of water. Now, where we start to have problems is it usually goes by the weight. And so like, let's say you have a really large dog and a really small dog in the house. Well, the small dog is going to get a larger percent of it because they're smaller. So they will get more of it based on their weight. So like, let's say it says, you know, one gram per gallon. Well, that's a small amount for the big dog, if, unless they drank that whole gallon. But for the small dog, that's quite a lot. So you want to make sure it's for the same size of dog. The other problem is when one dog is PUPD, or basically meaning that that one dog is drinking a lot more water than another dog. So if that happens, then that dog who's drinking a ton of water is actually going to get be the one that gets more xylitol. And that happens pretty commonly in like dogs who have like diabetes, hypothyroidism, things like that. So if they have something like that, then we want to make sure that they um, that they don't have that xylitol in there. And there are lots of dog mouthwashes that don't have xylitol in them, so they can definitely use those as well. All right, and then today I'm going to tell you a cool rooster fact, and then also just a funny rooster story that I have. So there have been like all these studies done trying to figure out like why roosters are so freaking loud, right? but they don't hurt their own ears. So they found that um, when they were doing like CT scans of chickens, hens, and roosters, that roosters naturally have like half of their eardrum covered in, in like a tissue. So it kind of decreases the loudness of sounds. But the coolest thing is they found that when they open up their mouth to crow, a lot of times you'll see them tilt their head back when they open their mouth. And that actually provides the whole eardrum with almost like its own natural earplug. So it like covers its entire eardrum. So that way when they crow, that they don't hurt their own eardrums. Because their crow is like ridiculously loud. When they measured it, they figured out it's about the same amount as a chainsaw. So if you were to like be by them all the time, you would go deaf because you your eardrums would just hurt so bad. And all the hairs in your eardrum would be destroyed. And I don't know how hens deal with this because um, hens don't have that same protective mechanism. It's like, I feel like they would just like run away from that, that rooster all the time. Or maybe they just don't hear very well. But they found out that this happens because not only did they do the CT scan, they actually also put like this little microphone inside the ear of a rooster right next to its eardrum and then found that this occurs. Super crazy cool, right? Like my rooster is freaking loud. And so I always feel so bad for my neighbors, but apparently nobody cares. But every time I'm in there, I'm just like telling him to shut up constantly because it's so loud. Anyways, funny chicken story or funny rooster story. So when I was younger, I would collect animals all the time. Not that I would like collect them to keep them. Like I would collect them to fix them. You know, typical veterinary thing. Like I'd see an animal. I thought it was broken. I'd come and I catch it, fix it, and then re-release it. So 
one time I brought home a rooster from my work and my mom like would not go in my room because she knew that I'd have some crazy animal in there all the time. Like I'd have an iguana or I had lizards, birds, all these different types of animals, chipmunks at one point. So she like just wouldn't go in my room because she just knew that there was going to be some animal that was in there and there was just no way to get me to stop taking home all these animals. But one day my mom heard the rooster crowing while I was at school. And so she paged me because this is during the time of pagers, right? She paged me and I call her back and I was like, hey, what's up? And she's like, did you know that there is a, there's a chicken in your room? I was like, well, yeah, he's been there for like two weeks. She was like, what? <laughs> like, yeah, I've had this rooster in there for two weeks. Um, all the other roosters or all the other chickens in the barn were vomiting and then they would die. And so I brought this rooster home because he's my favorite rooster. His name is Chip. He's my favorite rooster and I didn't want him to die. And so I brought him home and he's been living in my room for two weeks. She was not very happy. But I still kept him there until he was ready to go. So, and he lived, just saying. All right, guys. Thanks again. And next week, I'm going to be talking with Helen. We're going to talk about just like her experience becoming an LVT and what she does. All right, thanks, guys.